You know, the most common accusation uh, that the skeptic will make against the gospel is that the, the whole story is, is it's just a fabrication, they'll say. It, it's just a fairy tale made up by, by Jesus' disappointed followers after his sudden and tragic and violent death upon the cross. Even today, that's the most persistent attack that is leveled against the resurrection, against the, the teaching of salvation through faith alone in Christ alone and against the veracity of the New Testament record. Thankfully for you and me, that's also the easiest attack for us to refute. Uh, you know, first of all, it makes absolutely no sense logically that Jesus' disappointed followers uh, would, right after his crucifixion, choose to set themselves up as the next target for persecution and pain. It makes no sense that they would step out of the shadows and into the line of fire, uh, posing themselves against the powerful religious leaders and against the might of Rome. These guys had... And nothing to gain by doing that, and they had everything to lose. Secondly, it doesn't fit the evidence. The resurrection has all the evidence on its side. Hey, Jesus was verified by the centurion and then by Joseph of Arimathea uh, to certainly be dead. His body was accounted for. His burial was witnessed. His tomb was secured by guards. And yet, and yet on that Easter morning, the tomb was empty and Jesus was alive. He was seen not by one, not by two, but by hundreds, many of whom testified to the reality of the resurrection, knowing that it would mean their condemnation. Thirdly, as we're going to see in our passage today, the resurrection was God's plan all along. The death and resurrection of Jesus, of, of Israel's Messiah, it was foretold all through the Old Testament scriptures. <laughs> Yet Jesus' disciples didn't seem to understand that. And so, thankfully, Jesus chose to give two of them an in-depth Bible study lesson as they walked along the road toward a village called Emmaus. And that's what we're going to read about in our passage this morning. So grab your Bible, open up to Luke 24, the last chapter of Luke, the middle section of that chapter. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at, at verses 13 through 35. It will be our second to the last uh, message in our study through the Gospel of Luke. Will you do this out of respect for God's word? Will you stand? I'll read the passage. I'd love for you to follow along in your own Bible so that you can see exactly what it says. Here's what Luke writes, chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near 
and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then they asked him, then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas asked him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? What things, he asked them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. <coughs> some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going and he gave the impression that he was going farther, but he, they urged him, stay with us because it's almost evening and the day is, is almost over. And so he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and those with them gathered together who said, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have laid out for us such clear proofs of what your intention was from the very beginning. God, as, as Jesus taught those two disciples of the road as you opened their minds to be able to not only see him there at the end, but to comprehend the things that he was teaching. So, Lord, we ask that you'd open our hearts. God, we pray that you would allow us to comprehend, to apprehend these truths that are laid out before us and that in the midst of it, we too might see Jesus. Work in the midst of our time, Lord. We give it and ourselves to you. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.
You can be seated. I can't imagine the confusion, the disappointment, the fear that uh, these two followers of Jesus must have been uh, feeling. Undoubtedly, they had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with Jesus and the other followers. But then, but then Jesus had been taken from them. He'd been tried and condemned. And then they crucified him. And the one who they were calling the Messiah had died. And with him, all their hope had died as well. Unable to travel on the Sabbath, they'd found themselves stuck there in Jerusalem until Sunday morning. And so the day after the Sabbath, Early in the day, they hit the road. As we read in verse 13, they were on their way to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they're walking along, they're discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near, began to walk with them but they, they were prevented by God from, from recognizing him. Can you see the scene? Here are these two, and they're walking along. They're not just dispassionately chatting casually about what's happened. No, they are raw with pain and anxiety and disillusionment. I would imagine they were snapping at each other as they discussed and argued the issues. Uh, they seemed to be uh, looking at what had taken place from two very different perspectives. <laughs> kind of makes me wonder if they were married. <laughs> I mean, it is two people going to one home. This is a logical conclusion to come to. And it is pretty normal, isn't it, for a husband and a wife to see things rather differently from each other. By the way, I think that's part of God's plan. I think he, he made it to be that way because we need each other. We need each other. We need each other's perspectives. And, and you know, as well, we need to learn how to love and nothing teaches you how to love faster than dealing with differences. Well, in the midst of their intense discussion about all that had taken place and, and likely their discussion about who to believe and whether or not to believe and what to think about all that had been happening and been claimed, in the midst of all of that, suddenly they are aware that it's not just the two of them, but someone else has walked up on their conversation. And it's Jesus. It's Jesus, and yet the Lord somehow has kept them from realizing who it is. And so to them, he's just a stranger. 
And in verse 17, the stranger asks them, what are you arguing about? And they seem shocked, shocked, almost disgusted by the question. It's as if they just could not believe that anyone, that anyone could not know exactly what they were talking about. It says they stopped walking. He asked the question, they're like, what? Are you kidding? How can you not know? It was to a point that it almost, well, not almost, it says they were discouraged. It's like, how? How can you not get this? How can you not what's going on? And the one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's happened? And yet it seems that he doesn't know. And so in verse 19, look there, he asks, what things? And I want you to notice something about their answer. I want you to notice that when they speak about Jesus, And when they speak about their hope in Jesus, they speak in the past tense. They speak in the past tense. They said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. You see that? They had been hoping that he was the one. But not anymore. Not anymore. After all, how could Jesus be the Messiah if he were dead? I think... I don't know for sure, but I think that these two, they didn't agree and they had been arguing as to whether Jesus were dead or alive. I can see them, husband and wife. She knew those women. She knew their hearts. And she knew that they should believe what they had said. Oh, and I can see him. He knew life. He knew reality. And he knew that Jesus had died. He answers the question, they crucified him. He was dead. Oh, but she interjects. But it is the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some women from our group have astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb. And when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. You know, just the number of words used by each of them kind of hint, this may be a man and his wife. He says, they crucified him. She says, he was alive. And he says, yeah, but some of us went to the tomb and they found it like the women had said, but they didn't see him. It was the third day, wasn't it? And the women claimed that an angel had reminded them of what Jesus had said about 
about what would take place on that third day after he had had been killed, that he would rise again on the third day. And yet, even though they remember Jesus saying that, and for some of the disciples, they, they couldn't get there. They, they, it, was, it was just too much to believe. After all, Peter and John, they, they'd gone to the same tomb. Yes, the body was gone, but they didn't see Jesus. They didn't even see any angels. And they left the disciples not knowing exactly what to believe. And so in verse 25, though they yet do not know that it's him, Jesus says to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Notice something here? He doesn't say how foolish you are, how slow you are to believe what the women have said. Now, he could have said that. He probably would have said that as well. But where he points him to is not someone else's experience, but where he points him to is what the word of God says. He points them to the word of God. He says, yeah, the, the women have testified about that. Yeah, you, you should have believed them. But even if they hadn't testified about this, you should have known what God's word said. You should know what the word says. He says the word is clearly declared. It wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. And then beginning with Moses, speaking of those first five books of the Old Testament and all the prophets, most of the rest of the Old Testament, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus tells man, you guys should have known better. You should have known from the Old Testament scriptures that, that the Messiah came to die and that he would be raised back to life again. Wouldn't it have been amazing to sit in on that Bible study? Don't you wish you could hear that message? To hear Jesus himself explain the Old Testament and how it proclaimed from the very beginning the cross and the resurrection, that that had been God's plan from the very beginning. Now, there's no record of what it was that Jesus said to them. There's no transcript, not even any cliff notes. We don't really even know if it was a long or a short study that he gave to them. We do know it covered a lot of ground, beginning with Moses and going through all the prophets. He talked about all those things concerning himself in all the scriptures. What Jesus says, what we see here is that the whole Old Testament points to Jesus. It points us to God's plan of redemption, to the cross and to the resurrection. I don't know where he started, but I would guess he probably started at the beginning. I think he would have started in Genesis. Uh, there at the, the time of the creation and then the fall of man into sin, 
uh, where God makes this veiled promise to send a redeemer. I think it would have started maybe in, in Genesis 3.15. Uh, there where God is speaking to our enemy, the devil, and the Lord says that one will come. He's speaking here of the Messiah. And he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. I think maybe from Genesis 3, maybe the Lord would have taken them to Genesis 22. Remember the scene there is Abraham is taking his son Isaac up onto Mount Moriah. And there he's going to sacrifice him. And as they're walking up the mountain, Isaac looks at dad and he says, you know, I've been to sacrifices before and I see the fire and I see the wood and that's one big knife. <laughs> but pops, now, where's the sacrifice? <laughs> Good question, Isaac. Abraham seemed to know more than we would think. He responds to Isaac, God will provide the lamb. In, in the Hebrew language, what he says literally is God will see or provide himself the lamb. God will provide himself the lamb. And that's exactly what he did, isn't it? God put on human flesh. He became our sacrifice. And you realize it was on that very same mountain, on Mount Moriah, the cross stood where Jesus became our sacrifice and he took our sin upon himself. At some point, Jesus would have moved on from Genesis, maybe into Exodus. I'm sure he would have talked about the Passover. I mean, how could he have not talked about the Passover and the sacrifice of the lamb and the, the, the blood marking the doorpost for mercy, that lamb's death in, in, in the place of the firstborn of that home? I'm sure Jesus talked about the sacrificial system in place there at the temple, the, the, the continual sacrifices that had to be offered for sin. And I'm sure he explained to them, much as the author of Hebrews does, that those sacrifices, they were symbols pointing to the cross. Hebrews 9.12 puts it this way about Jesus being the actual sacrifice. It says he entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. All those sacrifices over all those many years, all pointing forward to that one moment in time when God himself in human flesh would take the sin of the world upon himself. No doubt he spent a good amount of time walking with them through Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, written over 700 years before Jesus was even born. 
and yet listen to what God speaks through the prophet Isaiah about the Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. What a picture of the cross. Jesus, you know this, was literally pierced for our sin. He literally took the punishment for our rebellion against God. He died in our place. Isaiah goes on in verse 6, it says, We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. Isn't that true? And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment and who considered his fate. For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, executed with criminals. But he was with a rich man at his death, buried there in Joseph's tomb. Because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. It's an odd odd phrase, isn't it? Two sentences strung together that might not make a lot of sense to us, that he had done no violence. He had not spoken deceitfully, and yet it says the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. Why? Why? Why would God want to crush him severely? So that he might redeem us. So that he might pay the just penalty of my sin and of yours. When you had made him a guilt offering, Isaiah says, our guilt offering. He will see his seed, his, his descendants spiritually. That's us. That's us. He will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied, the, the first hints of the resurrection. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, the first hints of salvation there, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels, 
yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Written hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ was even born, and yet describing perfectly our redemption, detailing how Jesus the Messiah had suffered and died in our place, taking God's just wrath for our sin. That had been God's plan all along. I'm sure Jesus didn't stop there. I'm sure he, he brought up Psalm 22. I mean, after all, he had made reference to Psalm 22 while he was there on the cross. Do you remember that? He cries out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That, that wasn't just a cry to God. That was a quotation, the first line of Psalm 22. It was Jesus saying to the Jews there, you might want to take a look at Psalm 22 if you want to understand the context of what's happening here before your eyes. Oh, Psalm 22, it describes the cross. It describes everything that Jesus was experiencing. It says, as a gang of evildoers has closed in on me, they pierced my hands and my feet. And later it says, they divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. But you, Lord, don't be far away. I'm sure Psalm 1610 had to come up. Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, tells us that this was God's promise to resurrect Jesus. Verse 10 says this, You will not abandon me to Sheol, that is, to the grave. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. The cross, his death, the resurrection, it was all God's plan. You know, it's interesting. It, seven miles is a long ways to walk, isn't it? That's a, that's, that's a journey. But you know what? Even if Jesus joined them at the very beginning of that long journey, even if they walked slowly, even if they walked and talked the whole day long, I promise you this, Jesus would not have run out of Old Testament prophecies and pictures and promises all regarding the Messiah, his death, our redemption, and his resurrection because that was God's plan from the very beginning. And his followers needed to know how to share that, how to vocalize that with others. And guess what? Guess what? We need to be able to, to do that too. We need to be able to, to point others to the Savior by, uh, by sharing the, uh, the evidence that points to the cross. Uh, we need to, to be able to show them the logic that all points to the resurrection. And we need to share with them from the Old Testament scriptures that were established long before Jesus was born that they too point to the coming of God's Messiah. I think that last one intimidates us some. I mean, I think all three to a certain degree, uh, talking about the evidence for the resurrection. 
I think uh, we're better at that than at anything else. Uh, we can look at the facts. We can look at the evidence, and and maybe we can present that to some degree. And if we think about it, we can think about the logic of this whole thing, that it just wouldn't make any sense for the disciples to make this up and to bring more trouble upon themselves. But I think we sometimes we get, we get intimidated uh, by looking to the Old Testament and yet, it is so clear in passage after passage that it was God's plan for the Messiah to take our sin upon himself, to suffer and to die in our place, and then to rise again victorious over death. It really isn't that hard for us to do this. All it's going to take is for us to make ourselves just a little bit familiar with passages like Isaiah 53, uh, to spend some time uh, reading and rereading passages like Psalm 22. Maybe you want to take a look at Daniel chapter 9. There's an amazing chapter, especially verses 24 through 26 that talk about what would happen with the Messiah. Or even a passage like Zechariah 9.9 that just point to singular details of what would take place when the Messiah came. We can do this. This isn't that hard. Well, our travelers, they come to their destination and they convince the stranger to come and to stay the night with him. I think they were hoping he would continue teaching. And so he went in to stay with him. Verse 30 tells us it was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. <laughs> and their eyes were opened. They recognized him. Can you imagine that moment? Can you imagine that moment? Oh, man. And then he disappears. It's like, what? <laughs> no, I just figured it out. Are you kidding me? As Jesus takes bread and he gives thanks and he breaks it and gives it to him, something that likely he had done with them many times before. In that moment, just like the Lord had kept them from seeing who Jesus was, the Lord opens their eyes and, and they see him. And they see him. He's alive. And then he's gone. Oh, can you imagine how frustrated they would have been in that moment? Apparently, God wanted them to put their focus not on the personal experience of having seen Jesus, but on what it was that he taught them. It's like the Lord is saying, listen, it's pretty cool that you get to see Jesus, but what you got to understand is I've got something that you need to pass on to the rest. There's something here that everyone else has got to know. Not everyone's going to see Jesus. Not everyone's going to have this personal appearing. But every last one of us can look into the scriptures. We can look at the Old Testament scriptures. We could see that this was the, not only the plan of God, but the promise of God. 
from the very beginning. So these two just sit there staring at each other. <laughs> and they can finally begin to spit out words. And they're like, oh, weren't our hearts burning? We, how could we miss this? Didn't we know when he was talking? It was just like, ah. And they're like, we got to go back. We got to go back. I know it's, it's nighttime. We're not supposed to travel at night. And it, it's a dangerous path. But we can't go to bed now. <laughs> or are you just going to lay here till morning? No, let's go. Let's go. And so that very hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. And they're so excited. And yet when they find the 11 and those with them gathered together, they're excited too now. They're excited too. And they, they announced that the Lord has been raised and has appeared to Simon. He appeared to Peter. Now, how did Jesus do that? He spends the whole day giving a Bible study to these two on the road to Emmaus, and yet at the same time, he also is able to appear to Peter. I guess when you're God, you can do things that we can't. And then these two begin to describe what had happened on the road, the teaching of Jesus, how he had explained the scriptures to them, and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Hmm. The disciples of Jesus have been given an assignment by their Lord. And we have that same calling. We have that same assignment. Uh, what he told them to do is what he tells us to do. We who have encountered Jesus, we who have been given understanding of God's word, we're to share it with others in order to point them to the risen Savior. Now, I know you're thinking, I don't really have that much understanding of the Bible. Trust me, you understand more than your neighbors do. If you don't feel like you understand enough, there's an easy solution to that. Get into it. Dig into the Word. Hear the Word taught, but dig into it yourself. Be in the Word. You and I, we are called by the Lord to share with others how it is that we have encountered Christ in our own lives. How it is that he, he grabbed you off that, that, that path toward destruction that you were so committed to. He grabbed hold of you and he has changed you so, so radically so dramatically. He's called us to, to point to others, point others to the overwhelming evidence for the resurrection, to point them to the reality that this is something that we can know. And he's called us as well to be able to explain to them from the Old Testament scriptures that this was God's plan all along. 
This isn't a story made up by disappointed disciples. It is the fulfillment of the promise that God made from the very beginning. I don't know how long we have left here in this life. I kind of think Jesus is coming. But you know, even if he delays, we won't be here long. Our time is short. Let's engage. We live in the midst of a world that is in chaos, that is hurting, that, that knows no truth, that is desperate for hope. Let's point him to the Savior. Let's share with them how we've encountered him. Let's share with them the, the, the evidence and the logic that points to the resurrection. And let's share with them that this was God's plan from the very beginning. Will you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, we... We see so clearly that your word has called us to be your ambassadors. That you yourself have called us to, to go and to make disciples, to share the good news. Lord, that for most of us, that terrifies us. Help us, Lord begin to share what we have experienced of you, to begin to share the evidence that is laid out so clearly before us, and Lord, to begin to share the fact that this is what you promised that you would do, that this is reality, that there is hope beyond the things of this life. That there is hope for eternity. God, use us in these last days to make an impact in this world, in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our families. Use us, Lord. We pray it all in Jesus' name.